0: Head to my website, SimonMundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter.
0: Hello and welcome back, Simon Mundy here. Now, last year, one of my listeners kindly got in touch and gently suggested that I get tested for ADHD, which I did both through an objective test and subjectively sitting down with the clinician. And I was diagnosed with ADHD on both counts. And I got to say so much made sense when I look back on my life after my diagnosis and so I'm delighted to talk about the subject with Tony Lloyd who is the chief executive of the ADHD Foundation and we talk about all sorts of things including ADHD skepticism, what it actually is and how it manifests, why it's not simply a disorder because context is everything as well as why leading organizations around the world like Google and Tesla are actively recruiting neurodiverse people and so much more besides. Now the work the ADHD Foundation does is superb and I'm delighted and honoured to have become a patron of the charity. I've also recorded a whole separate series called Rethinking ADHD with Cubitech who provided my objective testing so I'll link to that in the show notes and this was just a pleasure to record. Tony is a fountain of neurodiverse knowledge and a lovely guy too and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Tony Lloyd, an absolute pleasure to see you. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Simon. Good afternoon. Good to talk to you.
0: Thanks for coming on. Such a pleasure. We've already had the joy, from my point of view at least, of having a conversation once already. As you know, this is a topic very close to my heart. Quick recap, a a listener got in touch this year and suggested that I perhaps get tested for ADHD. And I did do that. I got tested both objectively via Tech, and then subjectively, I was diagnosed as having ADHD on both counts. It's a trait I have. I look back now, it makes so much sense from hyper-focus, anxiety, time blindness, choice of career. So I want to start though with a bit of an elephant in the room. I'm sort of preempting what people might think because when I got my diagnosis, I told two people, one's a friend and other's a hairdresser. And one said, oh, this is just a fashion that's going on at the moment. And another said, that's not a real thing, is it? My answer to them certainly to that latter one was where you wouldn't say that about autism or dyslexia. What would you say to people who say that?
1: Well, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And and I'm not sure really where all the cynicism about ADHD originates from, because we know that there were children who were identified as having these characteristics by a surgeon. I think it was a, a, a clinician way back in the 18th century, but it was actually first coined here in the UK by Professor George Still in 1902. But it's had a number of incarnations. It was called hyperkinetic disorder uh, at one time. Um, And I think the acronym Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, apart from being quite stigmatising, I also think it's a bit of a misnomer. It doesn't really describe what it's like. The reality of it is it's a naturally occurring phenomenon and a natural expression of this vast difference in human neurocognitive capability that affects 5.9% of the global population, more than 1 in 20 people. And like dyslexia, 1 in 10 people, which frequently coheres, these are... A natural expression. This is part of the universal design. Whether we should be calling them disorders is another issue, but they do come with challenges as well as strengths.
0: Yes, that disorder thing I know is a bit of a bugbear of yours. I was just looking on a mental health app of all things, and one of the questions about ADHD was, Can ADHD be cured? And the answer, which surprised me, was, Unfortunately not. And I know you don't agree with that stance either, because first of all, it's a trait and it's just part of the natural diversity of human neurology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, dyslexic minds have been around for as long as human beings have been around. I think context is the issue here, isn't it, Simon? You know, and I know a lot of people with ADHD who lead very happy, healthy and successful lives. We know that something like 30 percent of all entrepreneurs and senior executives have either ADHD or dyslexia or both because it frequently co occurs Um, We know that ADHD has a strong genetic overlap with autism. So there are a lot of people who have combined ADHD and autism. But here's the thing. There are seven and a half billion people on this planet. Not one person looks the same or sounds the same as Simon Mundy. And your brain is as unique as your fingerprint. And that is how nature designed it. And I think we've been in a situation, haven't we, for many, many years, a couple of centuries now, we've had this idea that this is normal, and that's normal, and you've all got to be like this, you've got to learn like this. We used to make left-handed children sit on their left hand, and write with their right hand. We realised that that was just stupid. This idea that you've all got to be the same, it's the very antithesis of the human genome, because actually, whole universal design is that everybody is uniquely different that is how it's supposed to be we're not all supposed to be the same and yet at the same time we're a social species who likes and needs to belong and thrive in groups so it's about that thing about why can't we just embrace the fact that we can belong because of by virtue of our humanity we don't all have to be the same look the same think the same we used to say that you know people of color right up until 1960 were educationally subnormal You know, how abhorrent is that? We used to describe LGBTQ people as mentally disordered until the 80s. Um, What is it about difference or diversity that that sometimes is often seen as not right? That, you know, we have to make people be like us, think like us, look like us, learn like us. And thankfully, today's generation of young people are much more embracing of diversity than, than my
0: generation anyway. Right, Tony, let's go back then to the key question as it were. So if someone said to you, what is ADHD? Just briefly, in a nutshell, what is it?
1: It is a difference of information processing from the environment that you live in. And it can give you certain skills and talents that enable you to excel in certain tasks and certain contexts. But in other contexts, it can be quite disabling. So ADHD when you're a school kid is really tough. But ADHD in your career, and for a lot of other people, it can be an asset. But like everything else, there are two sides to the coin, aren't there? And some things about it can be a real strength when you understand it, manage it well, play to your strengths. There are other things where you think, okay, well, I know I'm really good at that, but I'm God awful at this. And that's just how it is. None of us are brilliant at everything. And I think this world, you know, like biodiversity, we need different minds because actually something about our ability to thrive as a species requires different talents, different abilities, different ways of thinking um, in order for our species to thrive and, and adapt to our environment and indeed adapt our environment to suit our needs as well.
0: Yes. In terms of the key characteristics or the key traits, as it were, within ADHD, can you just outline them briefly?
1: So inattention, and that's poor concentration or difficulty sustaining concentration with tasks that we don't really think are relevant to our situation in that particular moment. It's a myth to say that people with ADHD can't concentrate, they can, they can hyper-focus. But difficulty sustaining concentration is a key one. Second major characteristic is hyperactivity, not just physical hyperactivity, but a hyperactive mind. A brain that works really quickly can make you very quick thinking, but also make it very difficult to get to sleep. And the third one is impulsivity. Um, and that's what neurologically is defined as lack of inhibitory control, where we might say or do something without thinking first about what the possible consequences of those words or actions or inaction might be. They sound simple enough, they sound almost trivial. They could say, well, we're all a bit, we're all a bit like that sometimes. But having ADHD is, is having those characteristics in a much more pronounced form and having it pretty much all the time.
0: Just to go back over them, inattention, I can very much relate to those two ends of the spectrum, inattention on one side and hyper focus on the other. So when I was young, I fell in love with tennis. I used to watch the Wimbledon videos that mum got me again and again and again and I know all the Wimbledon winners and finalists and scores dating back to the mid-60s when it comes something like that I was interested in French as well for different reasons I would excel but then I remember for example being on a a filming course not being in front of the camera being behind the camera and just couldn't pay any attention at all I remember at one point being zoned out and zoning back in just as this guy said and as long as you don't forget that you'll be just fine (laughs) so there's that, that inattention and hyper focus is definitely something that has affected me. That hyperactive mind part that you pointed at, because I'd never hugely associate with being hyperactive physically. But the mind, I completely, when you put it Mm. in those terms, yes, a quick mind that can sometimes go too quick. And it feels like my mind is going quicker than than my mouth. And as you said, it can cause real problems with sleep. I've talked a lot on this podcast about the anxiety-induced insomnia I had that was a real problem in my 20s in particular, and that impulsivity as well. So what's all this got to do then with dopamine, which is obviously the sort of the reward hormone that everyone talks about?
1: Yeah, well, there are two key key neurotransmitters involved in ADHD. One is noradrenaline, the other one is dopamine. The body's natural way of producing more dopamine is to move. So, if you ever been really busy, Simon, you're thinking, oh, I'm, you're struggling to kind of complete a task that requires a lot of focus. Now, Do you know what? I'll get up and walk around for a few minutes, clear my head, come back. And it's the very movement that stimulates more dopamine. So, when we're you know telling teachers. If you've got a child who's hyperactive and they're fidgeting and wanting to get out of their seat a lot, remember that they're not being deliberately disobedient. What they're trying to do, it's the body's natural way. They need more dopamine to concentrate. And the easiest default mechanism that we have to produce more dopamine is to move and fidget. And there are some people who don't express that physical hyperactivity in that way. Girls, females often have what's historically been called inattentive ADHD, so they tend to internalise that hyperactivity more. And what we see in girls and women, for example, is another way that the body gets a rush of dopamine is when we eat food. So we know a lot of people with unmanaged ADHD have problems with their weight because they are craving dopamine and they get that through food. But then we know there are a lot of sportsmen and women, a lot of athletes who have ADHD who thrive because they're moving all the time and then they experience difficulty when their professional sporting careers come to an end and hyperactivity in the workplace show me any employer who doesn't have a you know who has employees who are full of energy and always on the go it's a real asset it's only a problem for grown-ups in a classroom when you've got a child who won't sit down so context matters whether hyperactivity is an advantage or a disadvantage And when it comes to impulsivity, you know there are lots of professional comedians, Simon, who who have ADHD, who've spoken publicly about it. Their lightning quick, impulsive thoughts, words, what make them funny, and their impulsivity on stage can be a real asset, can't it? It can be decisiveness. It can be quick-wittedness. And inattention, daydreaming, mind-wandering, not being able to focus can also be a real fertile way of creative thinking and imagination. So context really matters with all of these things in terms of whether they're a challenge or not. But dopamine, we get dopamine when we do exercise, when we eat food, when we experience human intimacy, when we dance, listen to music, when we're doing things that we really enjoy. If you find something really boring because it just doesn't interest you, then you're not going to be producing enough dopamine to stay on task. But we're all different. We all have different interests and things that we're passionate about and enjoy, you know, we're all unique in that sense. So one person's ADHD is always going to look a little bit different to somebody else's.
0: As far as I'm aware from having listened to you talk, and I found this very interesting, organisations like MI5, GCHQ, Apple, Google, Tesla, so right at the cutting edge, they are actively now seeking people who are neurodiverse. And you mentioned entrepreneurship. I heard a stat that entrepreneurs up to 625% more likely to have ADHD than other members of the population. So there's a real link, is there not, between people at the cutting edge of creativity and, let's say, neurodiversity and ADHD.
1: Yeah, well, what what Steve Jobs said was that the reason those companies were the most successful companies in the 21st century was that from the 80s they'd been actively recruiting a neurodiverse workforce they really valued the fact that they needed different minds people with autistic minds dyslexic minds dyspraxic minds adhd minds dyscalculic minds because they processed information in a different way and he said it gave them a competitive edge and you must have heard all those quite kind jokes about Silicon Valley being called Nerd Valley. And, you know, we were we went to school where we were all enculturated into thinking, weren't we, that the special needs kids weren't like the rest of us, they didn't really belong here, and that they weren't very bright or they came from bad families or they were naughty. You know, that's a terrible myth. And we've done so much harm to so many children over the years because, because we've said, well, they don't think like us, therefore they're not intelligent. And it's complete nonsense, 40% of millionaires are dyslexic we know that there are a lot of people with adhd in the creative industries and particularly performance industries as well as sports but you'll find people with adhd in every profession hiding in plain sight barristers judges police officers teachers doctors and we don't see them because we were all brought up to believe that people with so-called special educational needs aren't very intelligent and not very successful and aren't going to get anywhere well here's the truth 75% of people we just never identified in school because the only ones that were ever sent for an assessment were the kids who were really troubled, who probably had a lot of trauma and other things going on in their lives. We know now that adults industry are celebrating and lots of people owning their dyslexia, their ADHD and saying, do you know what, that negative stereotype that we were all led to believe was ADHD or autism or dyslexia when we were at school, that's not true. There is no correlation with low IQ. It's got nothing to do with intelligence. It's about conformity. It's about, you know, you have to think like this. You have to learn like this. You have to pass exams. And we're going to measure it this way. And quite often, that's been more about people saying, well, we need to look successful. If you're not learning and achieving, I'm not going to accept that it's not because I'm not a good teacher or not a good parent because there's something wrong with you. Um, And I think historically, we've abdicated responsibility for for enabling people to reach their potential. But thankfully, a lot of people did. And we see many people now, senior executive CEOs, the founder of IKEA, you know, had ADHD. Um, We just heard from, didn't we, last year, Cambridge researched uh, on Leonardo da Vinci, said that he had ADHD and dyslexia. Einstein, you know, autistic, they would have probably been excluded from our schools today. So.
0: There's Einstein, Mozart, people have spoken about him. Yeah. Richard Branson, Leonardo da Vinci. So, just in terms of the organizations, cutting edge organizations, let's say like Apple or Tesla, and they're obviously Mm -hmm. working in very much a 21st century way, but our education system is still set up in a 19th century way, isn't it? In terms of sit down, be still. Don't fidget and memorise this at a time when actually the skill of memorising, let's say, is not actually as important now as it was previously because we've all got smartphones. So
1: absolutely. Yeah.
0: Creative thinking, on the other hand.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a piece of research published last year that said that they did a, a creativity quotient metric on children and over 90% of children thought creatively. But when they use the same metric on adults in their late 20s, just over three percent still thought creatively. And, and and the researcher argued that does that mean our education system is teaching people not to think for themselves, which is a rather challenging proposition. I think there's a lot of debate around the whole neurodiversity agenda, isn't there, Simon, at the moment, particularly within education, because it's challenging previously held concepts of what intelligence is and how we measure it. And that's now being turned on its head. Our understanding, the research in neuroscience, is challenging a lot of our preconceived ideas about what intelligence is and how you measure it. And it's calling for us, isn't it, in an information technology driven economy, workplace, culture, that thinking differently now is something that's that's really prized and valued. A lot of the successful companies that are out there now, the age of technology has really opened up a lot more potential opportunities for people who maybe didn't quite have the kind of academic profile in school. Because what, I mean, you tell me, Simon, what do you think intelligence is? Do you think it's Do you think it's intellect? Do you think it's memory?
0: What is it? It comes in many forms, doesn't it? A good friend of mine who didn't do hugely well academically at school, but is socially one of the most intelligent people I know. There's obviously Daniel Goleman's famous book about emotional intelligence, which is said to be a better predicator of life satisfaction than IQ.
1: Do we measure emotional intelligence in school? Do we measure character intelligence because that's a new thing that some industries are using in recruitment don't you think your value and things like that influence what intelligence is and, and your hindsight and your foresight and your ability to problem solve and also the context i mean there are some contexts where certain cognitive skills are really highly valued but i wouldn't employ somebody with gets dyscalculia as an accountant but i might employ them in other roles uh, if I have a project team, I won't have one project manager. I'll have two. One is a creative lateral thinker, somebody with ADHD or dyslexia. The other person is going to be a super linear thinker, very organized, good executive functioning skills, etc. because the two things combined get you what you need.
0: And those traits you mentioned, inattention, hyperactive, impulsive, everyone will have them to a certain degree, but to get, to be, or to have, ADHD let's say you've got to be past a certain threshold that's the key distinction.
1: Yes and in more than one context so both at home and at school or at work and at home it needs to be evident in what we call more than one domain of living.
0: How old were you Tony when you found out you had ADHD and how does it present itself in you?
1: I was 29 when I realised and I was actually in the states, and. It was oh gosh, the early nineties, you couldn't get a diagnosis of an adult in those days and um, because it was classed as a childhood disorder that you grew out of on your sixteenth birthday, apparently. Uh, that's the thing about medical you know, everything it has to be exact, you know, everything has to be this or that. Human beings sort are of infinitely more complex than that. For me, it was a recognition that although I was a very academically I was a bright child, I could produce A-grade work every week, but when it came to exams, I bombed because I, I used to get so anxious, I would become forgetful. I didn't sleep well. I had a lot of trouble with anxiety. So for me, it's, yeah, I've got a hyperactive brain, still got a hyperactive body. I think it makes me a very creative and solution-focused thinker, but it's like that thing, you know, what impulsivity, well, I can be decisive when I need to be. I can be hyperactive and hard work and I can be inattentive, which means that I can be creative and, and it really depends on the task in hand.
0: I've heard you talk as well about sensory integration difficulties. Yes. When there is a lot of noise in your environment and that got me thinking as well. So I produced a podcast series about ADHD and it's been so interesting. I've learned so much about it over the last few months and I told one of the people I spoke to that when I go to the coffee shop to work, I will always put in earplugs and face the wall and have my phone off. And she explained, well, that's a coping strategy that I've put in place without realizing it. And when I heard you speak about that, I really resonated with that. And then also you yeah. spoke about the, the sleep issues. And as I said, I had really bad sleep issues. So that comorbidity, let's say with anxiety, it sounds to me from the research I've done that that is incredibly common and that cortisol and adrenaline tend to be somewhat raised in people who have ADHD.
1: Yeah. And it's a bit like driving a car with one foot on the accelerator and one foot on the brake. You need more dopamine to be focused and alert and and to sustain attention. And if you feel under pressure, your body's stress response Produces these stress hormones that give you that extra turbo charge of energy and cognitive functioning, but it only works for a short time. It's only to be used in high pressure situations. If you're using stress hormones every single day just to focus, then it can be exhausting and that can cause anxiety and depression. And we see this a lot in teenagers with ADHD because when their ADHD is diagnosed late, they're Brain in child has got so used to relying on stress hormones to focus in school that it can make them experience a lot of fatigue and tiredness, and a lot of stress and anxiety, which can also sometimes lead to depression. But I would also say that there are, you know, again, you learn strategies and ways of energizing yourself. But it's always easier if somebody says, do you know what, you've got this type of neurology, have you tried this, 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 and this? We all know it works. And the thing about, you mentioned about sensory integration, there is a very strong genetic overlap between ADHD and autism. And people with a primary diagnosis of ADHD, about 30% have co-occurring autism. And there's some research that says that those are the primary presentation of autism, As many as 60% have co-occurring ADHD. And I know a lot of the autistic charities never wanted to talk about this because ADHD was this Voldemort acronym that nobody wanted to mention because of all the stigma. But sensory processing difficulties is more often associated with autism. But a lot of people with ADHD have it. So I have very acute hearing. For me, ADHD is like being in a room with six televisions. I can try to watch one, but I can't filter the other five out. My partner likes to have the television really loud, which really kind of causes me a lot of stress. So I'm kind of sensory avoidant, whereas my partner's sensory seeking. Um, But you find this different sensory profile. It's like some people have an amazing sense of smell, don't they? Um, It's all part of this natural variation in, in human neurocognitive sort of capability because we live in this amazing planet with all these very different life forms and different climates and Different flora and fauna and foods. You know, we need to have this vast array, don't we, of senses and sensing in order to thrive on the planet. So sometimes it can be a real advantage. Sometimes it can be a challenge.
0: In terms of some of the ways to manage it, you talk about routine, got an electronic diary, daily task list, healthy choices, exercising, meditation, eating. So, can you just talk about some of those? process oriented things yeah
1: many of us with adhd if you look back at childhood i self-medicated with caffeine i drank about 40 cups of tea a day with sugar in it as a way of helping me get energy but it's not good when you're using lots of carbs or caffeine because you get these like waves of energy and then it slumps again which isn't helpful some people can be quite addicted to exercise um and I also, when I was young when I started smoking because that worked like a stimulant as well. But what I did learn was that managing stress, things like daily stress reduction strategies, not as a reactive strategy when I was stressed, but as a daily part of my well-being, I learned that you could go for a walk and meditate. You didn't have to sit cross-legged. I learned that breathing deeply and slowly for five minutes, three or four times a day really could have improved the resilience within my my nervous system. Um, I was less likely to get overwhelmed and stressed. And you know, having lots of planners, wall charts, and reminders, and post-it notes, and alarms on my phone, the better organised I was, the less stressed I was. Because like you, I'm a bit time blind. Sometimes five minutes feels like an hour, and then there are other times where an hour feels like it's five minutes. I think, oh my God, where's that gone? And that can make life stressful because then you find yourself late a lot, or you underestimate how much time a task is going to take, or you overcommit and overpromise to do things and there isn't enough hours in the day. So good planning, good sleep, good diet, your body and your brain needs fuel. And similarly with exercise, and stress management, your ability to self calm and self soothe, and having hobbies and fun in your life that are interesting, that energize you that are fun to do. And you know, a way of burning off some of that hyperactivity as well, if you have that particular kind of profile,
0: you talk as well about having the team around you. So you know what you're good at, playing to your strengths, and then getting help with those areas that you're not so strong in and this is something I wish I'd learned earlier because I've definitely got strengths but I've also got these areas where I felt deficient and I've beaten myself up for it and thought okay why am I not up to this level that I believe I should be rather than perhaps looking to get help in those areas so yes focusing in on what you're good at
1: yeah, well, I think you know. Again, we were all brought up to believe it was that intelligence meant what kind of grade you got in your exams? But I think school exams are measuring your intellectual competency in certain curriculum subjects, not necessarily your problem solving, your values based analysis and, and analysis and problem solving, your emotional intelligence, your ability to work as part of a team, your ability to be self motivated you know there are so many facets to intelligence so everybody around i go into lots of corporate boardrooms and i'm saying to them if everybody around the table thinks like you and that's how they got here then you need to be very worried we all like to be around people who are of like mind who think like us um who have the same values well okay that's all well and good but if everybody's thinking the same all you're going to get is more of the same and there are a lot of businesses that have gone bust for that reason and i think the comment was you know some recently about you know certain aspects of government that if you only have people who are making the decisions who have a very narrow experience of life and you don't have different perspectives and different views and different experiences around that decision making table how can you make decisions that really do understand the full impact of those decisions on everybody around you so for me having a team that think differently from me is a real asset you should be able to challenge and come up with different ideas and different hypotheses and you should be constantly testing your hypotheses and saying well why do we think like this? Why do we do it this way? Why can't we do it better? Why can't we do it cheaper? Why can't we do it faster? Why can't we do it in a kinder way? The greater diversity of thinking, the better. I think whatever the context and whatever the challenge or opportunity.
0: And that compassion for your weaknesses, rather than beating yourself up. Yeah, And then as well, making sure that family and friends understand and are able to support that's fundamental yes it's been huge for me my wife's been wonderful that's
1: well that's good to know isn't it i mean people just say to me why do you always forget to shut the drawer or you know did you empty the washing machine i'm like well was i supposed to didn't you notice it was full like no what about the box in the hall i'm like what box in the hall the box that's been there for two months i just don't register some things but then there are other things that I know I am exceptionally good at. And I'm really fortunate. My husband is a very, very understanding, intelligent man. He really gets it. He's quite funny. He knows that, you know, a a lot of the things um, that he loves about me and that's great about our life are as much to do with my ADHD as anything else. And that, you know, yes, it comes with certain challenges and disadvantages. It can be the best of me and the worst of me. It depends on the context.
0: Sticking with relationships, Tony, I read that for people with ADHD, there's a higher prevalence of divorce and relationship issues. And it got me thinking, we've obviously spoken about our own relationships briefly, but how important do you think it is for a partner to read up on ADHD, to understand why their partner is the way they are, for better and worse?
1: Well, I mean, in a nutshell, we're a social species, aren't we? The genetic imperative is relationship-driven. We thrive in relationships. We have a fundamental need to be known and understood by other people, and particularly in, a, in the context of an intimate relationship or a marriage. What is it that makes us fall in love with somebody? And often I think it's as much about their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses as it is about all the things that are, you know, that are, are lovely about them. But I think in any successful relationship, it really is important to understand how your partner experiences the world. And we all have different lives, different experiences that color how we see the world and how adventurous or confident we are, all of these factors. And many people with ADHD lead very successful lives and have very successful careers, and they're very good at masking how their ADHD affects them. And sometimes, I mean, it took my partner a while I said, I just don't understand. He said, you've got all these letters after your name. He said, you forget where you put your keys this morning. It's like he just couldn't equate how you can be so skilled and competent at some things, but really fail on other things that, that seem to him quite trivial and important, you know? When I, I remember when I first told him that I had ADHD and he just, he said, no, you haven't, you can't possibly have ADHD. Of course, Colin was a, a deputy head in a school. and I said, well, I don't know what you think it is. So he learned a lot about it. And he said it was, it really changed things for him because he understood why I did certain things, why I would be so sensitive about certain issues. But also in terms of understanding how I did things, my executive functioning skills, particularly, which were not great. So it's worked really well for us. But I I do feel sorry for anybody, because there's so many people out there, Simon, who don't even know they've got ADHD. Never mind their partner not know. But I do think it's really important that your partner understands what it is and how it can impact on you.
0: You mentioned sensitivity. So that brings me to rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which people talk about in terms of being part of ADHD. I believe it's not acknowledged to be part of the diagnostic criteria. You can confirm that. Yeah, it's certainly a real thing. I've been very sensitive through my life and it can be challenging. So first of all, why is it not part of the diagnostic criteria if it's not? And then second of all, I've heard you say a, a wonderful quote, which is learning that how we feel and think isn't how the world is. So can you just talk to this a little bit? Yeah,
1: in in, in the English language you know, or in this country, when people say, oh, they're emotional, well, it's often used in the pejorative, isn't it? It's like, it's not good to be emotional, which, you know, you compare it to the sort of the Latin European countries um, who are much more expressive and affectionate. In my experience, I know that for most people with ADHD, it's almost as if their emotional range is bigger. If you could imagine a kind of, a graphic equaliser and the slide that has emotion. With ADHD, it's usually on maximum. You know, you can be very happy and find things funny and be great fun and the life and soul of the party. But, you know, you can also be very easily moved, very compassionate, very sympathetic, very empathic. It just seems to be something that uh, a lot of people with ADHD experience. Not, I think, so much with ADHD and autism combined, because that can be a more unusual presentation and it depends whether the autism is more pronounced than the ADHD. But yeah, and and the thing for me, Simon, there's a lot of literature around well ADHD kids tend to get told off a lot by their parents. So there is this idea that you know when you're chastised a lot as a children and you're told off a lot in school for fidgeting or for not remembering what you learned the previous day
0: or being impulsive with what you blurt out in
1: class. Yeah. So on the one hand, you kind of you learn to mask it so that you can assimilate and belong and have friends and be like everybody else, which can be stressful um, at times. But I do think that because a lot of people with ADHD do feel things quite intensely, I think it is important to kind of remind them that how we feel isn't necessarily how it always is. That's not about invalidating your feelings, but it is About accepting the fact that do you know what I don't need to be overwhelmed by this tomorrow's another day sometimes things go wrong and sometimes people don't understand each other or misunderstand words or situations as you know we do ourselves and that we can take offense or be hurt by them when that was never the intention I think it's just part of just part and parcel of ADHD. But I think that sensitivity can be a strength.
0: Oh, definitely. Should it be in the diagnostic criteria?
1: I don't know. I think anxiety should be. But there are a lot of what clinicians call comorbidities, Simon, that we know correlate with ADHD. We know that over 30% of people with ADHD also meet the diagnostic criteria for autism. We know that there is a really strong level of co-occurrence with Dyspraxia and tics really commonly associated with ADHD. I think anxiety should be part of the diagnostic criteria, um, and I think executive functioning should be part of the diagnostic criteria as well. But low mood and anxiety most definitely, yeah.
0: Okay, in terms of executive functioning, so that means planning, prioritizing, organizing, remembering instructions, managing multiple tasks, and the difficulties in that area can lead to frustration. Yeah, I've read it's to do with the prefrontal cortex, which made me think actually the importance of things like meditation, of, of training that part of your brain. But mm. what would you say about executive functioning? What do people need to learn? And how can someone who doesn't necessarily have a team of people around them to help them get on top of executive functioning to the best of their abilities?
1: It's a really good point, actually. And there are a few other things about executive functioning, like task initiation, sometimes sort of expressed as procrastination, sometimes interpreted by other people as laziness, when are you going to start that? And often it's more about not knowing where to start. I have a very, you know, I mean, my partner has a torchlight linear kind of cognitive functioning. Mine is a bit like a kaleidoscope. I can see... Multiple starting points. Um, It's almost like I don't know where to start. It's not because I don't want to start. And so task initiation is an important part of planning and organizing and prioritizing. And being able to think flexibly, moving from one task to another is something that some people find difficult. But often you can move from one task to another not having completed the task that you were on before. You want to see me when I'm cleaning the house five rooms are all half done, I've left things, and it's almost like I go round them all a few times before I finish. With executive functioning, I think it is about plan and organise your life as best as you can. It's a bit like having an external hard drive on your computer. I have post-it notes, I have a daily to-do list with priority tasks, less of a priority tasks, and then hopefully tasks by the end of the week. Um, I have a flip chart, I have a whiteboard, I have a cork board with goals that are for the week, for the month, for the year. I have these constant reminders set on my phone and on my calendar. All these things that help me juggle being a CEO and leading a very busy life, it stops me from being overwhelmed. It doesn't mean to say that I still don't forget sometimes, but I do
0: so you need to have those there in front of you. You don't want to be keeping it up up in your head.
1: Yeah. Object permanence. Object permanence. It's like it needs to be in front of me for, for me to remember it a lot of the time. So uh, you know, it's a bit like have have an external hard drive. You know you can't hold a lot of information in working memory. So find, you know, flip charts, to-do lists, reminders, other things that keep reminding you of the things that you have to do that day
0: and in terms of something like meditation and i know you've done for example deep breathing to help you manage your nervous system how important are things like that in terms of training our powers of focus and our resilience to be able to deal with that barrage of of thoughts and stuff like that
1: yeah it's an essential part of your day-to-day self-care and self-management of adhd Progressive muscle relaxation is a really, really powerful tool. A lot of people think that meditation is about sitting cross-legged with your, you know, with your hands on your knees. It isn't. You can go for a walking meditation and breathing at a frequency of in for five seconds and out for five seconds, doing that for five minutes, four or five times a day, actually slows your heartbeat down it lowers your blood pressure but it improves cognitive functioning it improves your ability to focus and concentrate and if you notice Simon you'll notice this with being in sport when the adrenaline's rushing we tend to breathe in a much more shallow way deep breathing lowers the kind of stress response and the stress hormones because while adrenaline and cortisol can be helpful in high pressure situations if you've got Elevated levels of stress hormones all the time, your breathing will be more shallow, and that impairs your concentration, your focus, your ability to self regulate emotionally as well as cognitively.
0: Okay, that's really helpful. However, even when we do these things and put these things in place, life has a habit of putting a fork in the road, shall we say? And so overwhelm will still come. So, just briefly, Tony. If you're in a state of overwhelm, what do you do? Is it just a case of, okay, step back, let the snow globe settle and take that time to let things just calm down, which can be very hard?
1: I like that analogy of a snow globe, Simon. I think that's really good. Um, I go for a walk. I go for a walk. I'll sit down on a bench. If I'm at home on my own... I might even put some music on that I know is always going to elevate my mood. But for me, it is about the need to
0: withdraw. Yeah, that's interesting. The mind can be quite um, misleading. I find that when I get overwhelmed, actually, my mind sometimes will push me to do more. The quote I quite like is, when our thinking is at its most compelling, that's when it's least trustworthy. That is often the case with me. I'll go, okay, actually, I need to stop and go for a walk, not just plow on and hit a wall.
1: You've hit on a really good point here, Simon, because here's the thing, you know, when we have a lot to do, and we're getting anxious about all the things we've got to do, and we haven't got enough time to do them, we've got to pick the kids up from school, and And one of the things about ADHD is it's poor time management. It's not intentional rudeness to be late or tardy. It's just that often you underestimate how much time something's going to take or you overpromise and say, well, yeah, I'll get that done today. And you just can't fit it in with everything else that you've got. The temptation is, or the instinct is, isn't it, do what I'm doing faster in order to get it all done. I'll stop worrying about it if I'm busy getting on with it. Well, that's great until you are so exhausted you drop. So being busy sometimes is a bit like an antidote for anxiety. At least you feel like you're in control because you're doing something. But often you don't necessarily do it well. If you're overwhelmed, you're too stressed And of course, all those executive functioning skills that you were talking about before, if they weren't great in the first place, once you're in a state of overwhelm, your executive functioning skills are completely out the window.
0: Just moving on, Sam Thompson recently won I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. I didn't watch a huge amount of it. In fact, I didn't watch any of it. But I've caught up on a couple of clips where he spoke about his experience of ADHD He, I think, was only diagnosed last year. He's spoken about it being life changing. What impact does it have, do you think, when people in the public eye do speak out, as they have been doing a lot recently, about having ADHD?
1: Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, You know, I mean, Sam's a lovely guy, isn't he? And, And, you know, came across really well. And it was great because it challenges, again, those myths, doesn't it, that we were all inculturated into at school about ADHD, kids are naughty, and, you know, there are still a couple of politicians who have this sort of really outdated, stigmatising, stereotypical notion of what ADHD is. It is helpful when people in the public eye, because it challenges that stereotype, that You know, everybody was led to believe in school, which is why 75% of kids with ADHD never got assessed or diagnosed, especially girls. But I think it's really helpful because we know that if we do diagnose early and intervene early, then we know that the health outcomes, you're less likely to fail at school, less likely to start smoking, more likely to be economically independent. There's so many benefits to it. So when people like Sam speak out and, you know, lots of other people in the public eye have spoken out about having ADHD, you know, over the past few years, yourself included, Stephen Fry, Rory Bremner, Alison Moyet, obviously more and more people in professional sport, for example. It's good because we're demythologizing it. We're just saying, Do you know what, who I am is OK. I'm very successful. I've achieved this and I've achieved that. I might not be brilliant at everything. Um, Yeah, I've got ADHD. So what? I think it's really helpful and good for Sam um, for speaking out. He didn't have to share anything about himself publicly, um, but he chose to. And I, I take my hat off to the guy because people and particularly children and young people with ADHD, they need good role models.
0: He also spoke about a sense of grief and earlier shame. Very common phenomenon, something I hugely relate to. He said, if I'd known earlier, it would have changed how I felt about myself. Now, for a long time, I would have been on a long quest to understand why I felt a certain way to try and fix myself, let's say. And I'm actually grateful for that because it's given me so much insight into a lot of things that I just otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. But that sense of grief and previously shame seems to be a common part of this that actually can sneak up a bit unexpectedly i was quite surprised at feeling grief for example
1: it's interesting isn't it? i mean i you know when i was at school although i didn't tell i knew i was clever and i always had this great sense of expectation you know i knew the answers before the kids in the class and you have to get a grade a i knew i was good at a lot of things awful at exams and then came this kind of great disappointment that I never lived up to my own expectations, not never mind anybody else's, and felt such a disappointment because my grades weren't good enough, or I would forget where I put things. Then came the great realization when I was twenty nine. I thought, Ah, oh, now I get it, and I, I, I was. It was such a relief, Simon. I thought, I'm not daft. I'm not. I, I get this. This is just how my brain works, and. This is why I was so anxious, so anxious I was off school for six months with severe anxiety in the year that I should have been doing my my GCSEs. And finding out, there was also that moment of grief because I just think, how much easier would my childhood have been? How much easier would school have been? How many detentions would I not have got? And I did cry at the thought of, I just thought, I look back on myself and I just pictured this little kid who was doing his best and just nothing it seemed that he could do was good enough for the adults in his life. And sort of in my mind's eye, I almost traveled back in time and went to this sort of and visualized sort of talking to this little boy who was myself and just saying, By the way, I'm Tony, I'm you when you're older. You don't know this, but let me tell you this you're all right. You're all right, you're doing okay, and everything's going to be okay, and you'll understand it and I promise you it'll work out. It was an epiphany really, but it was quite cathartic because you you forgive yourself for things yeah. and it does help you be I think as well more compassionate and understanding of other people
0: so if, for example, someone suspects their kid has it or another neurodiverse trait what would you suggest they do
1: find out be an informed parent don't assume that your child's school is going to know what your child is struggling with or assess them for their needs because the only children who are ever assessed for anything in school are the ones that are find, that the, that the teacher is finding disruptive you know one in 10 people have dyslexia but only two out of every 10 kids with dyslexia ever get screened in school. Particularly girls, there's a terrible gender bias with all of neurodevelopmental conditions like dyslexia, dyspraxia, or autism. Girls are often overlooked. But I would say to parents, be an informed parent and advocate for your children and be that pushy parent because our schools are not resourced and there's something about our education policy in this country that we don't screen children in school, but we expect teachers to get children to get results. How are you going to adapt your teaching for a child if you don't know that the child has got dyslexia or ADHD or autism? And I always use the analogy of, you know, if you were a child of five and you were short-sighted starting school and you were being told off by the teacher because you were falling behind everybody else and all the other kids in the class were learning to read and write quicker than you, and then somebody bothered to test your eyes and gave you this simple bit of technology that was lenses, and then you could see the world in focus, there is no way you would have ever known that the world could be seen in focus because all you have ever known is looking at the world and experiencing the world with short-sightedness. You didn't know all the other kids in the class saw the world in focus. So if you've got ADHD or dyslexia or dyspraxia, how are you going to know that your brain processes information in a different way? And trying to explain to teachers, look, everybody's brain is unique. Your brain is as unique as your fingerprint. It's the universal design that one in 20 people have ADHD, that one in 10 people have dyslexia, that one in 60 odd people have autism. It's always been that way. The reason we all think differently is perhaps because we've all got something to learn from one another. And it's not all about being the same, learning the same, learning to pass an exam as opposed to being educated to be a decent human being who can achieve their potential, whatever that might be, to... Play to your strengths and develop your talents and make a successful transition through adolescence and a successful transition into adulthood and the world of employment. And being an active citizen and being economically independent and employable. That's what we all want for our children. We don't want children to be labelled disordered. Children are different and unique and should be loved and cherished and supported and enabled And that doesn't mean a one size fits all. And I think sometimes we can do a lot of damage to children in school if we don't do that.
0: I've heard you say the school system as it currently is can be inhumane to the 20% of people or kids who have ADHD. I was listening to that with my wife and she said, wow, that's so interesting. I mean, that's a powerful comment.
1: Well, it's twenty percent of children who have the, the naturally occurring learning differences like dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, ADHD, and autism. It's one in twenty have ADHD, so there's at least one ADHD kid in every class. But every classroom is a neurodiverse classroom, um, and I told you that fifty-three percent of Generation Z children now identify as neurodiverse, which I think is a really interesting thing, isn't it? That they're much more embracing of diversity of mind. And I think historically it's been that, well, you know, you have to be like this to belong in this school. You know, you have to be uh, this kind of student. You have to sit still. You have to write with your right hand. You know, remember we used to make children who were left-handed sit on their left hand? God knows why. It's this idea about you've all got to be the same. There is not one human being on this planet who is the same as another human being. That is the universal design. And we need to embrace that diversity of mind. And what we need in our education system is a diversity of mindset.
0: Another problem, I think, in terms of people who perhaps suspect they might have ADHD or their kid might have ADHD is the simple difficulty in getting diagnosed. I was very fortunate. I had a listener get in touch and say, have you been tested? And then I did the QBtech objective test, sat in a dark room for an hour doing these weird tests that you know there was no way I could game the system, so to speak. And then I went on and was very fortunate to be able to see a psychiatrist, spent five hours with him talking through it. So I got, you know, two diagnoses, objective and subjective. But I know going through the NHS, because I had mentioned it to them, you're looking at a couple of years, two, three years. So there's this sort of two tier system, isn't there?
1: In one part of the UK, it's the waiting, waiting time is 10 years. But I also know that there are the top five performing trusts in the UK see twice as many patients for the same amount of money as the five worst performing. There is a real social justice issue here, Simon. Um, And I think it's often because commissioners don't understand just how impairing ADHD can be. And we're at least 1.8 million, but statistically up to 3 million people in the UK who are going to have an ADHD neurology. There's only 220,000 people who take medication. There's 8 million people who take antidepressants. There's still a lot of ignorance and stigma. There is absolutely no justification. For those people who do need ADHD meds, it costs about £800 a year. If that's the price of somebody being able to lead a healthy life and achieve at school and be able to go to work and do their job if that's what they need, why can't they have it? Um, and, And I think, really, it is a national scandal, and... Um, I think for me as well, um, it is about, you know, it shouldn't have to happen to you to matter to you. You know, we've we've all got friends who've got children who have got either dyslexia or ADHD or autism. We should all be concerned about that. We should want everybody to be able to thrive, you know, to enjoy childhood and to enjoy learning in school and to achieve their potential, Um, you know, and for whatever reason that we are not screening children particularly, I think is is cruel at times. We're putting them through unnecessary stress. Um, And I think for adults who need that help, we've got to get past this stigma that seems to be the main reason why these cultural and systemic kind of problems still exist within the NHS when it comes to assessment treatment of ADHD.
0: You're the CEO of the ADHD Foundation, Tony. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought this was a really interesting way of looking at it as well. You would like to see neurodiversity, including HD, be treated in the same way as other minority groups. For example, things like ethnic diversity, sexuality and gender.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It comes back to this idea that we talked about before, Simon, about, you know, what is it about difference? Culturally, we've rejected people who were different, whether it was because of their color or their sexual orientation, and not embrace the fact that we belong by virtue of our humanity. Diversity is the universal design, and it's something that we should embrace and celebrate. When it comes to neurodiversity, when it comes to ADHD, those children are deemed as less deserving. They have to wait years to get an assessment or treatment. They don't get the kind of support to enable them to achieve their potential. And equally, I think, for a lot of adults.
0: I've got a book here, Tony. Gabor Maté, who wrote Scattered Minds. Gabor Maté, who has got ADHD himself. Compelling reading. Now, he implies that ADHD can be triggered by childhood trauma, not being seen and heard, or growing up in a really tense environment where you're hyper alert the whole time. You're always on the lookout for danger. And he talks a little bit about epigenetics as well. So that the likelihood that we have it and then that being exacerbated by our environment. What's your take?
1: Um, well, first of all, it's a great book. But I, I, I deviate a bit from Gabba Mate's position in that we know that there are gene variants that we know relate to ADHD. If it was just trauma, then why is it that there is this strong heritability factor where we know that if a parent's got ADHD, there's a 50% chance that their child will have ADHD. Or if they've got two kids, that one of them is gonna have ADHD. That can't be trauma, that's got to be genetic in origin. I think where Gabamati makes a good point, however, is that trauma exacerbates ADHD. And I think as a child, if you experience a lot of trauma, then that's going to make your ADHD characteristics more pronounced.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the impact of social media, pros and cons. On the plus side, it seems that the awareness of, for example, ADHD has skyrocketed as a result of, of communities getting together on social media. So you could argue that's a positive, although it seems to put some people's noses out of joint. But at the same time, I'm very conscious of how much people are scrolling so we never have to be bored and that's keeping us again in that stress hormone position the cortisol and the adrenaline keep coming so scrolling's not good for anyone but particularly people with adhd so what's your take on on social media and even is it increasing these traits of impulsivity inattentiveness in people who don't necessarily have adhd
1: it, i mean it's an interesting hypothesis i think there is research that proves that we are now dealing with overwhelming amounts of information. We're in front of screens all day. What we have is information overload. It's not more information we need, it's more wisdom. And there is some research that proves that when there's so much cognitive stimulation, your brain has to temper down because it can't process that amount of information. So there's some research that proves that the whole human race, or at least in Western society, has diminished ability in terms of sustained focus and concentration. So it's a factor. You know, a lot of children don't read books anymore, which I think is a real shame. But I think social media, one, it's been very democratising. I always thought also so-called experts, we can take refuge in academic absolutes and academic ivory towers about, well, the research says this. For me, social media has given people a lot of information that's it's really helped You're right, there have been some very cynical people and cynical politicians and even some cynical doctors who are saying, oh, well, it's people self-diagnosing on TikTok. My response to that is, well, if you give people decent, quality, strength-based and balanced information in the first place, there wouldn't be a vacuum that needed to be filled by TikTok or other things. I mean, if you read the page on the NHS website about ADHD two years ago, Simon, it said, oh, people with ADHD, inattentive, hyperactive, impulsive, more likely to abuse drugs, become alcoholics and commit crimes. That was what was on the page.
0: Wow.
1: And I lambasted them for it. That's where the shaming and the stigma, it's almost saying there's something morally wrong with these people. They don't deserve to be helped. And the idea that we used to give children Ritalin to make them behave because it was a morality pill is completely untrue, it doesn't make children behave. It helps them focus in a way that makes their bodies calmer and need to move about less, which is less distracting. That's not the same as appropriate behavior. So social media, yes, there are dangers around how much time people spend on their screens. I think the art of conversation, the art of reading a book, children playing out as opposed to always on a screen, I think, you know, in some ways it's tougher for kids today. But I also think that social media has been very democratising.
0: Okay, a balanced view there, Tony. You mentioned Ritalin. So let's talk about medication then to round things off. Still something of a controversial subject. What's your take on it?
1: Medication isn't right for everybody. It is not a neurological El Dorado that's going to make everything about your life perfect because that is not how it works. What it does is it improves the cognitive functioning in your brain. And therefore, you rely less on stress hormones. You're better able to plan and organize your life. You're better able to self-regulate your emotional sensitivity. It's not right for everybody. Not everybody wants it or needs it. But for many people, it can be a life changer. And it can be really helpful. And there is absolutely no reason why people shouldn't have access to it if they need it. And we know that there are a lot of people who will use it for a while until they've learned to make the lifestyle changes that they need to make and find the kind of job that plays to their strengths, and then they no longer need the medication. And that's great. We know that earlier we identified children evolution didn't design children for the way we educate and socialize children now so if we're going to put children through an artificial stressor such as modern day education we've also then got to be prepared to help them manage with and thrive in that artificial situation which from an evolutionary point of view they were never designed to be sat behind desks for seven hours a day when they were five six seven eight nine 15 years of age. So I think medication is something that we need to have a balanced view of, but in and of itself, I would say to anybody, you should never use ADHD medication in isolation. And if you're struggling at work or you're struggling at school and you're only taking medication, but not doing some exercise and stress management, then you need to look at what your self care regimen is. Again, unfortunately in in, in the NHS, it's like, well, here's a prescription. Nobody gives you decent quality information about how to live successfully with ADHD.
0: Right. Let's wrap things up, Tony. Just explain what you're trying to achieve with the foundation and just really any other final words you have, where to find out more about your work and, and what the ADHD Foundation are seeking to do, etc. Um, what
1: well, the foundation is here to promote a neurodiversity paradigm, and that is to take the D words out of ADHD, to look at dyslexia, autism, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, and not see them as disorders, but see them as natural expressions of this vast spectrum of neurocognitive capabilities that the human species have, and embrace that difference and celebrate that difference and see it for the asset that it is, and change the educational paradigm that is designed in a way that just automatically excludes over one in five children from learning how to learn you know it's also about celebration so we do things like the neurodiversity umbrella projects where we have umbrella installations in public areas in towns and cities in the uk a lot of schools and offices have them um next year we're going to have them in in new york chicago washington dc Malaysia, the UK, Ireland, Australia. It's about celebrating difference and diversity. So that's really what we're about. But we do obviously provide a lot of support and training for education professionals, for healthcare professionals. There's a lot of very dedicated professionals out there trying to improve how we educate and provide health services support parents who often don't know how to parent a child who thinks differently from the way they do and particularly helping you know helping young people transition into adulthood and employment helping people develop their careers whatever it takes usually through that lens of understanding most of the time we do better when we know better so yeah it is about challenging stigma and prejudices and inequalities that are experienced by people who think differently.
0: Well, Tony, I think the foundation is fantastic. I think the work you do is brilliant. And it's just been a pleasure talking to you. So thank you very much indeed for coming on. It's been a joy.
1: Thanks, Simon. Cheers.
0: for listening to this episode of the life lessons podcast i would be delighted to hear your thoughts as always get in touch by my websites or on social media and i'll link to the excellent work the adhd foundation does in the show notes as well as the rethinking adhd podcast series that i've recorded where we go deeper into many of the areas i touched on with tony until next time goodbye